Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Want to hear from God's Word? I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 22 to continue pick up in this Samuel series, The Life of David. In the last chapter, chapter 21 from last week, we saw where David pretended to be mad in order to escape from King Ashish of the Philistines. And tonight in our chapter, we encounter the very madness of King Saul, who in an insecure rage commits great evil, the decline of this rebel, alienated from God and enslaved his own sin, is contrasted with the rise of an obedient man who fellowships with God, who receives the assurance of salvation and even the hope of ascendance to the kingship if he endures and perseveres through trial. May we heed the warning of this passage and be encouraged to press on in dark and difficult times. I read from 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, so I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart. And go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand, and all of his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse come unto Nob, to Himelech and the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Haitib. 
And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as of this day? Then Helimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant. Draw the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed all that day 85 persons who wore the linen of Fod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is God's word. Father, tonight I would pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week I was contacted by a friend from college who I hadn't heard from in at least two years. And though not having ever received a professional diagnosis that I am aware of, I believe that my friend suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. Once a brilliant biomedical engineer, some 12, 15 years ago, he suffered symptoms, went on to ruin his marriage, his career, and has been in and out of homelessness ever since, consistently blaming government conspiracies for his sad condition. Periodically, I get voicemails from him at odd hours of the night, filled with all various kinds of plots by or against the Church of Christ. It is very sad, a sad testimony to the state of mental illness that goes untreated for years. I, my friends have made efforts to steer him toward professional help without success. As the story of David progresses, we see the growing signs of Saul's descent into insanity. The climax is here as he sets out to destroy the whole house of priests in Nob. 
But Saul's madness surpasses anything that we would call mental illness. Saul has gone mad into sin, an unrepentant man in rebellion against the living God. In this passage, as throughout the book of Samuel, we see Saul and David contrasted as the unrighteous versus the righteous. A man in rebellion versus a man who is repentant. An unsound mind compared with the mind of Christ. And tonight I hope to organize our thoughts around three themes of how the righteous are made outcast in this world. How the unrighteous are made mad by sin. And how the righteous might find their refuge in Christ. First, how the righteous are made outcast. David the fugitive in our passage returns after having made the maddening decision of finding, seeking refuge in the city of Gath, the hometown of his nemesis, Goliath. And with a twist of irony, David there had to pretend to be mad to escape the clutches of the Philistines before taking up shelter among the caves of Adullam in Judah. And there his family must flee to join him to get away from Saul. Soon David finds himself surrounded by a small multitude of outcasts who suffered under the oppression and corruption of Saul's abusive administration. The text says that everyone in distress, everyone in debt, everyone who were bitter in soul came to find refuge with David. And here once again we see the Christ-like nature of David, who welcomed to him the marginalized, those who were out of favor with a godless regime. Church planters know that taking in people who don't fit anywhere else can be a challenge. Nothing like debtors and bitter hurting people to launch a movement. But like his much greater descendant, Jesus, David leads this ragamuffin band with godly zeal, humility, and character by which the Spirit of God subdues the dark side of sinful men, mobilizing them into a force that can bring change and renewal to launch Israel's golden age. Concerned for his parents, David takes them to the king of Moab. And perhaps David wins sympathy as a refugee. Or maybe the king of Moab seeks an opportunity in checking Saul's power by offering support to the potential future king of Israel. Or just perhaps David is capitalizing on his Moabite relations. His great-grandmother Ruth having been a Moabite whose story we're studying in the Sunday morning sermons. But however, for whatever the reason, David there as he passes his parents off into the hands of the king of Moab, there submits himself to God's purposes, in whom he takes refuge, acknowledging that he must know what God will do for me. 
David is no longer running blind by his own wits, but he is walking by faith, trusting in the Lord. He wrote Psalm 142 about this time where he writes, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David and his men are vulnerable, without a place to call home. And the Lord graciously sends the prophet Gad to give him clear instruction to leave the stronghold to enter into the land of Judah. How encouraging that must have been for David and his men to hear from the Lord, to know that they have not been forgotten, trusting that the counsels of the Lord are always wise and perfect. David obeys the Lord and takes his men to the forest for cover. And it's here that we can specify the distinguishing characteristics between David and Saul. One was obedience. David's obedience was not perfect, and yet it was characteristically faithful and submissive to the Lord. Saul's was not. Another distinguishing characteristic between David and Saul is repentance. When confronted for his sin, Saul showed remorse, but not repentance. David, having been backslidden in his flight from Saul to the Philistines, came to his senses and was soon reliant again upon the Lord. Later, when he would sin even more egregiously, his soul was not lost. But he demonstrated repentance with deep and genuine repentance of the heart. His fruit of repentance demonstrates that David was a man after God's own heart. But what follows in our passage shows the the ugliness of the thorns and the thistles that grew out of Saul's heart that bore no fruit of the Spirit, but rather a murderous, irrational revenge upon the holy priests of the Lord. Even with this position of power and privilege, Saul was in darkness alone. In contrast, David on the run, a fugitive and vulnerable, walks in the light, and he is not alone. God affirming his presence with the future king by the sending of Gad the prophet. Saul is an illustration of the domino effect of sin. Cheating leads to lying, leads to false accusations, leads to hatred and violence. A theme emerges across scripture that idolatry leads to immorality, leads to injustice. Saul's administration fostered injustice, oppression, and abuse. And interestingly, Saul's injustice against David marks him as the leader of the faithful in Israel. David shows concern for the weak, the scattered sheep of Israel. Jesus would have compassion upon the crowds who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like his forefather, Jesus gathered a band of ragtag followers whom the Pharisees mocked as mere tax collectors and sinners. The twelve, Mary Magdalene and others, 
We're not great world influencers, not wielders of worldly power. David and Jesus gathered outcasts, the righteous, of whom the world was not worthy, who by faith brought the world a message of hope and the salvation of the living God to all those who would believe upon Christ. Secondly, we see in verses 6 and following how Saul's tyranny brings, shows how the unrighteous are given to the madness of sin. First, consider the madness of loving power. Saul's failure to unite the nation and gather followers to himself led to the defection of the disenfranchised who flew to David. Saul's love for power and his paranoia over losing it were symbolized by his grasp of his spear as he sat under the tamarisk tree surrounded by his men and hears the report of David's whereabouts. And there Saul accuses his most loyal men of conspiring against him. It must appeal to their own self-interest to calculate the benefits and the cost of following him or helping David to the throne. Muslims around the world must make a similar calculation as to whether or not they would follow Christ, suffering in this life, but enjoying the benefits of life eternal. Saul is one who buys loyalty, offering fields and positions of command. He is a mere politician, not a leader. Saul is committed to himself and not something bigger than himself. Like the world's authorities, what drives Saul is not the good of the people and certainly not the glory of God, but his own vain glory and his limited grasp on power. Contrast David, who with meekness departed with his people from Jerusalem to protect them from the oncoming coup and potential onslaught of Absalom. And then Jesus, who in Philippians 2, the famous hymn, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Secondly, consider the madness of demanding unrivaled loyalty. You can hear the self-pity in Saul's voice when he cries out in verse 8 to his men, no one feels sorry for me. He manipulates his supporters. He alienates his son, a godly and righteous man whom he falsely accuses of stirring up the son of Jesse against him. David and Jonathan loved God, not power. Saul's charges are all untrue. His men know it. Saul is trapped and blinded by his love of power, his love of self, and his demand of unrivaled loyalty. The silence of his men is broken when a subject loyal to Saul's mad delusions, Doeg the Edomite, reports how he witnessed a hymn like the priest had inquired of the Lord for David and gave David provisions and even the famous sword of Goliath. Doeg is an opportunist. 
seizing the opportunity to gain favor with Saul to utilize his vulnerable condition, to present the facts in such a way to further distort Saul's perception of conspiracy. Saul has abandoned God, alienated his men, and even pushed away his son, and all that he has left is Doeg the Edomite. 1 John 2.18 says that many antichrists have come. Saul is one of them, bearing the likeness of Pharaoh, who cast Hebrew baby boys into the river Nile. Like Athalia, the queen who nearly wiped out the Davidic line until a heroic princess hid the baby Joash away in a secret room. He foreshadows Herod, who would annihilate any potential rival among the little boys of Bethlehem, thwarted by the angel who warned Joseph to lead Mary and the baby away from danger. The church through the ages has had more than its share of antichrists, from Diocletian's persecution in the early church. Louis XIV, who persecuted the French Huguenots, Charles II, who attacked the Church of Scotland, and the untold millions crushed and killed under communist, Islamic, and other totalitarian regimes in recent centuries. Saul, and the various antichrists of Scripture and throughout church history, all shared a lust for power, an unquenchable thirst for loyalty to fill their God-sized void in the heart. They, the events of the capital this past week, all remind us that our loyalty is never to any, any political leader, but God in his word alone. Verses 11 through 19 show a third madness unto sin, the height of madness in playing God Saul summons Ahimelech and the priest of Nob. And rather than ask Ahimelech to confirm the facts reported by Doeg of how he assisted David, he goes right into accusation, insisting that Ahimelech has conspired against him. Saul's mind is corrupt. With self-serving fear, convinced that everyone is out to get him. He He has what I call the anxiety of Cain who said to God, Any, everyone who finds me will kill me. Amalek responds in the first place, demonstrating that David is Saul's faithful servant, his son-in-law, the captain of his bodyguard, the most honored in all of Saul's house. Now it may be that Amalek did not know anything about David being without out of favor with Saul, but it's just as likely that he was courageously confronting Saul for a well-known injustice against David. He demonstrates that confronting sin, even when committed by the powerful, is the job of those called to preach God's word. John the Baptist confronted Herod's illegal marriage and got beheaded. Nathan confronted David's adultery and murder and got repentance. Ahimelech then 
appeals to logic, pointing out that this was not the first time that he had inquired of the Lord for David. There was nothing peculiar about this meeting. But Saul will not hear anything reasonable. No one will dissuade him against his conviction that David was out to get him and was being assisted by the priest. Saul pronounces the judgment of death upon Himelech and his entire father's household. Rick Phillips comments, it is precisely because Ahimelech's reply was so noble and true that it drove Saul into a murderous rage. Those who will not repent must instead attack the source of their reproach. And for having so clearly revealed Saul's unjust malice towards David, the priest and his entire household must die. Saul's self-serving Self-protecting madness is a reflection of his rebellion against the Lord. God had set Saul on Israel's throne, and Saul had set himself upon God's throne. Saul accuses David and Himelech of disloyalty, insurrection. But it's Saul that's guilty of disloyalty and insurrection against God the true king of kings and lord of lords. Saul commands his soldiers to strike down the priest. But they refused to lay hands upon the priest because they feared God more than the king's wrath, knowing that Saul was out of his mind in a jealous, vindictive rage. Seeing that his men were not on board with his plans, Saul turns to a foreigner, Doeg, to execute these servants of the Lord. And so like Hitler's henchmen, Goring and Himmler, men ruthless without conscience, Doeg does the wicked bidding of the king with no fear of God, commits this great act of evil and violence against innocent, godly men, servants of the Lord Almighty. Though not explicit in this passage, I think it does demonstrate a spirit of courage from Ahimelech, his fellow priests, as they faced the sword and the unjust sentence of death. And they, in my mind, helped demonstrate the faith and boldness of the persecuted church throughout the ages. From those listed from the Chronicles of the Book of Hebrews, the persecuted in the early church, the English martyrs Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who played the man as they were burned at the stake and set aflame a candle that would never go out of the English Reformation. In our own era, we've seen the courage of Bonhoeffer and the untold thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, who have suffered and died all across Asia, the Middle East, in various self-protecting man kingdoms where Christians are perceived as a threat to one's power and must be put to death. Among the voices of the oppressed, let us not silence the voice of the martyrs. Saul treats Nob 
its families, the entire town, as a condemned city. He punishes it with the ban, the most severe punishment in God's law upon wicked cities. We're not just the men, but the women and the children, not just the people, but all the animals are destroyed. In Saul's mad quest for power and preservation, he elevates himself to godlike status. Or even the mere perception of disloyalty warrants his unmitigated wrath. Saul carries out this horrific deed, but had failed to do the very same thing to the Amalekites, which was commanded by God. Walter Chantry writes, Years earlier, Saul had not been able to bring himself to slay all the Amalekites and their cattle. Now he obliterated both priesthood and town. The madness of Saul. The spirit of Antichrist help us to see with peculiar clarity that our focus is on Christ in these tumultuous times. We live in a pandemic, in an age of disinformation, in a time of deep political division and mistrust. And as believers, we must subdue a vindictive spirit and not tolerate hatred, unmerited suspicion. I charge all of us to die to such spirit, to not yield to excessive fears, to not fall prey to every conspiracy theory of what the other side is up to, but to live in peace to pray fervently for our nation and for our government, to live in quiet and humble trust in the Lord, to be courageous, to be strong and courageous, and to follow Scripture's lead on where we are to find our refuge. A son of Himelech. Abiathar, by name, is the only one who manages to escape this death sentence. He finds David and informs him of this great act of evil. Immediately, David laments, revealing that he knew on that day that Doeg would tell Saul and that there would be consequences. David did not cause these horrific deaths, but he was the occasion for them. And so it is that we may be the occasions of great evil and suffering in other people's lives, even as we aim to live faithfully in service to the Lord. David will write the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 52, against Doeg the Edomite. But Doeg's wicked act surprisingly fulfilled God's holy word. You recall back in 1 Samuel 2, God pronouncing his judgment upon Eli, his wicked sons, and their household. How that line would die. Every single one of the men would die by the sword except one who would weep for them. Fulfilled prophetically, powerfully, in this surprising and tragic chapter. Even Ibiathar would later be deposed by King Solomon for his support of Adonijah's false claim to the throne. 
So it would appear that opposing, in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies merely bring to pass God's holy word, as Peter confirms in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God is never surprised. And God uses great evil to bring about great redemption for his people's good and for his own glory. The arrival of this young priest, Abiathar, along with the ephod, was visible proof to David and his men that God was with them, and I'm sure encouraged them, strengthened them to pursue God's cause to help restore sanity and holy order to Israel. And here David instructs Abiathar to remain with him as a fugitive under the safekeeping of God. What other choice did he have? He was a marked man. And what other choice do we have? Where else are we to find refuge? We have an enemy that despises us, who hunts us. We must follow him who cares for the oppressed, who defeats his mighty foe, the great shepherd of the sheep, the rock of Israel, the Lord's anointed, the son of David, whom David called his Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners. Only in him will we find relief from the madness of this world and freedom from the tyranny of sin. One commentator summarizes this passage with these words. This chapter began with David's followers looking like little more than a rabble. But by the end of the chapter, God had summoned David to embrace the kingship and provided him with both a priest and a prophet. These represent our great need to be defended by a mighty king, reconciled to God's favor by an atoning priest, and instructed into faith and salvation by a true prophet. Unite with him. Follow him. Join him in the mission of restoring God's kingdom, of spreading the news of the rightful king and his reign over all the earth. Even as we patiently await the end of the tyranny of evil in this world, and enter into an everlasting age where all oppression will be gone forever, and that we will enjoy God's justice and righteousness from everlasting to everlasting. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are humbled by the hard things we've read and looked into tonight. It's a grave warning, but also offers great hope that you are the God who sovereignly brings about your purposes of redemption for your people. And I pray that you would give us courage and strength during these times to walk by faith, to live boldly yet humbly, to testify to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that you walk with us through the valley. May you be glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.